This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at WorkingForestsInitiative.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. This week is a very relevant episode I had on Elizabeth Drew, who is the author of Washington Journal, which is one of my favorite books about Watergate. She was, at the time, the Washington correspondent for The New Yorker, so she covered it in real time. Today, Elizabeth writes for The New York Review of Books. And Washington Journal is an amazing book because it is a real-time diary, a real-time journalistic diary, reported, written beautifully and with great scope, but an ongoing chronicle of what it felt like to live through Watergate, what it was like every week as Washington, D.C. and the major players in it tried to absorb the information they had, tried to puzzle through the information they didn't have. It, it really is helpful, I think, for trying to understand what it is like to live through a period of great confusion and potentially great import. We talk about that, obviously, in light of Donald Trump, of the Russia allegations, the resignation of Michael Flynn. And I want to be extremely clear. I am not analogizing. We are not analogizing what is going on to Watergate. I do not believe, I have no reason to believe that Donald Trump has done anything impeachable nor that there are any sort of crimes being concealed in his administration. But there is a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot we don't know. There is a tremendous amount about the ties between him and members of his staff to Russia that seem very, very strange. And I think it is worth getting a little bit of historical perspective, both because I hear this analogized to Watergate so much, so I wanted Elizabeth to come on and explain the ways in which maybe those analogies do not hold up, but also because it is important to try to think about what are useful habits of mind How should you think about periods like this? Elizabeth is a brilliant political journalist, a great storyteller. I learned a lot and really enjoyed this episode. I think you will too. As always, a couple quick requests. Please share the show. Put it on Twitter. You can use the hashtag The EK Show, which I try to check. Share it on Facebook. Send it by email. Tell people about it. Tell them about your favorite episode. It is how we grow. I am very grateful. Please check out my other podcast, Weeds, where Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias and I talk deep in the weeds of American public policy, of which there is plenty of right now. And finally, continue to send me your guest requests at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. All that said, here, without further ado, is Elizabeth Drew. Elizabeth Drew, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So I have been wanting to talk to you about this for a long time now. So I've read Washington Journal. It's a book I love. And I did not think it would be relevant again in in quite the way it it is now. So I wanted to begin by actually asking about the circumstances around that book. When did it feel to you 
And what was it that felt to you so dire that it merited the keeping of that kind of journalistic real-time chronicle of events? The story rather crept up on us, and by us I mean the uh, justly legendary William Sean, editor of The New Yorker. And I just had a premonition. It was the Labor Day, Monday of the Labor Day weekend. I was in New York, and I saw Mr. Sean. And I had just begun writing for them, and we didn't know sort of where it was going. But he said to me, do you have any ideas or thoughts? And I said, this was when Spiro Agnew, Nixon's benighted vice president, who was caught taking cash in envelopes in his office at the executive office building because he was being paid off for some deals he made when he was governor of Maryland. And so Agnew was clearly in deep trouble, but I, got, I just had a sense. Maybe there's part of me that's a witch. I don't know. And I said, I feel that within a year, we're going to change vice presidents and then presidents. Now, where did this come from? Nixon was already in some trouble. The Watergate burglary had occurred. Another more important one had occurred, but we didn't know that yet, but Nixon knew it. And it didn't seem sustainable to me. And one just sensed that there was this there was miasma of things around first Agnew and then Nixon that were going to maybe bring them down. And this was very ahead of time, but I just got this instinct about it. So Mr. Sean said to me, well, oh, do you really hear this little voice? Well, do you really think so? And I said, yes. And he said, so maybe you could keep a journal of it and just go around and write what you see and what you think, and let's see where it goes. And But it really started when I mentioned Agnew, and he said, oh, that's so, he had this great sense of wonderment that brought out uh, the best of you. And he said, you know, we've never had to do that before. How do you change vice presidents? We had to invent it. So that's where it started. And then something happened on a, sometimes he would call me on a Saturday, and something happened on a Saturday. I think it was the firing of, of uh, the attempt to fire Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor, the Watergate special prosecutor, because he was subpoenaing the tapes that it was realized that Nixon had kept in his office of all conversations in the Oval Office. And Nixon was saying no. And so that turned out to be an incredibly dramatic evening, but we didn't know that then. But Mr. Sean called me and he said, we were Mr. Sean and Mrs. Drew then, and we got on first name basis, big ceremony later on. And he said, hello, Mrs. Drew, this is William Sean, as if I didn't know. And he said, don't you think you, this might be it? And I said, yes, I think this might be it. He said, you better keep going. And so I just kept going, followed it on to the end. But the thing is, Ezra, it looks so tidy in hindsight that this was inevitable that Nixon was going to go. It wasn't inevitable at all. It didn't seem that way. And it nearly didn't happen because there was a, we'll get on to this later, but there was a real failure of nerve among a number of the politicians, particularly Republicans. You have to remember the, uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998 was a reckless act and it wasn't worthy of impeachment. Impeachable offenses are very serious the Constitution says high crimes and misdemeanors. But by almost making a joke of it, Newt Gingrich and some other geniuses got him impeached in the House. But there was a big backfire to that. And Newt, you know, they lost, the Republicans lost seats and Newt lost the speakership, but they had trivialized impeachment. So you have to skip over that and back to the idea of impeaching a president. 
That hadn't happened since Andrew Johnson, right after the Civil War. And even then, it, was, it wasn't over a very serious thing. This was terribly serious, and it was frightening. It was awe-inspiring. Impeach a president. And Nixon still had a you know, fairly strong following. So it was uh, very uncertain and very frightening. So one of the things that is great about the book, but is also something I would love to get your impressions on of what it was like. What's great about Washington Journals, the reason I responded to that book so much is that books about Watergate, any history tells history as if it was driving inexorably towards a single point, as you put it, as if it was inevitable. And the book, one of the things that is striking reading it is just how much confusion there was at every given moment, how little was known, how much people were trying to puzzle with incomplete information, how much people thought that later turned out to be wrong, how things went from being completely unthinkable to all of a sudden completely thinkable. This last year has had the quality of the unthinkable becoming thinkable with tremendous velocity, not just Donald Trump winning the primary in the election, but Russia hacking the election, James Comey coming out with his you know, letter two weeks before the vote. Now you have the very, very rapid resignation of Michael Flynn. And what I'd like to get your sense of is how people navigate and weigh these periods when very little is known and there's just a feeling of something potentially going greatly wrong. Because that is, we are not in the end of this, if there even is an end of this. But I feel as a journalist, as a person, relatively unequipped to know how to even judge the beginning. That's almost the point. Or maybe it is the point. You can't know. You're in it. And that's what I was trying to capture or tried to capture as I was writing in the journal. We didn't know. You didn't know where it was going. Nixon was not without his resources and his own deviousness and his own backing. And he wasn't giving up easily. And so you can't know where it's going. And that's what that was what I was trying to capture. We're sort of in the same place now. Some of us have instincts that this doesn't look sustainable for four years. I've had that instinct since before the election. But how this plays out, there are numerous possibilities and we, you know, people can discuss them at length, but we don't know. But that's all right. That was the point of capturing, you know, you're like in the middle of the Civil War and you're here in Washington, the, the Confederates are coming over the Potomac River. Is the Capitol going to be captured or not? And that's what I was catching was the actual confusion and the number of surprises Now, one thing that's very different about then and now, it sounds like I'm two centuries old, but it's not quite like that. There was no cable television. There was no internet. And so people have said, you wish you'd had the internet then. I think, God, no. I mean, it was bad enough. The rumors were flying around. So what we had was the morning paper, some radio broadcasts, the evening paper, and the nightly news. And that was it. And when you think of, when I think of the number of rumors that flew around, because right now it's not that much is happening or we don't see what's happening. All this is flying around. It just would have been impossible to keep up with it then. And there's a lot of wasted time now, but the point is we can't know where it's going. And that's part of the, you know, mystery. And I don't mean happy excitement, but it was a very nervous time. There was a lot of sort of dark humor. You can't believe what they've done now kind of thing. And it was funny and it was scary because among other things, to take one example, you had this goon squad hired by the White House, paid for their White House funds and some other money that Nixon and his people raised. 
These were mainly veterans of the calamitous Bay of Pigs invasion, Cubans, who were really embittered over Cuba, the Bay of Pigs having failed and Cuba remaining under Castro. Nixon had them, I mean, it has to be funny. Nixon made sure that they'd all read his book, Six Crises, and the chapter about how he, he, how he helped unmask Alger Hiss, who was spying for the Russians. And he wanted these clowns, frankly, to understand that they were on a great anti-communist mission and that's why they were doing these things. And you had two ex-CIA honchos. Of course, they messed up everything they did. The botching of the Watergate break-in was just one of, of several. Uh, so first I want to just say, because well, we're going to get— gonna Let me get... just say, you had, you had these dark jokes. You know, we'd be on the telephone and wondering if we were being tapped. I mean, we're not at anything like that now. Right. And we're not at any—I wouldn't begin—there are some parallels, but I wouldn't begin to suggest that there's an inkling— that anything like that is going on in the mm-hmm. Trump White House. I don't think they're competent enough to do it. That may be. But, you know, there are going to be no tapes. No president since then has taped the Oval Office meetings. And nobody's going to be hiring these, you know, these clowns again. But so that's that's not a peril. There are other ones, but that's not it. So, so one reason I wanted to have this conversation was I'm hearing a lot of people analogize how this feels and what it is to Watergate. And I think there's a lot – we don't have many things to liken no. where this might go to. And so no. we, we instinctively go to the one we have, which is Watergate. But I think people – this is something that you've taught me. People mean a lot of things when they say Watergate. That's right. And there's many non-analogies here. That's right. And, and so I'd like to just get – and I recognize it's a complicated question, but in the simplest way we can, what was Watergate? What do people mean? When well, they say Watergate, mean what things. should people mean when they say Watergate? Right. What brought down? Let me ask it this way: What brought down Richard Nixon? Watergate was a constitutional crisis. It was not a straight line story. I have to give it to you both ways at the same time. It was not a straight line between the burglars going into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in the Watergate office building, thus the name, getting caught. Oops, there's a cover up. Oops, the cover-up comes unglued, and Nixon is run out of office. It's not, not that simple at all. Well, some people see it as a whodunit story, you know, a detective story. But a lot of that, a lot of the issues, the, the burgling of the Watergate, the cover-up, he had bag men running around with money, dr- doing drops to keep the burglars from talking. That was the cover-up. All of that could have been handled in the criminal courts. And in fact, you had prosecutors in and out of the Justice Department who were tracking all that. That isn't what brought it to a head. What brought it to a head was the sense and the reality that we were in a constitutional crisis. And by that, I mean, there was a real question of whether the president would be curbed at all and pay any respect to the other branches of government. Would he be accountable to the Congress and to the courts? For a long time, he held out on obeying a court order to turn over the tapes. He was being extra legal. And this was what was so alarming about it, that were we going to keep our constitutional system of checks and balances? There's a little trace of that now, but we'll get to that. That, to me, was Watergate. I always felt it was a constitutional crisis, and I still think it was. And the the cops and robbers part of it was interesting and peculiar and 
funny and alarming, but that isn't what brought down Richard Nixon. It's when it got to the, the real turning point was the famous, I hate these cliches, but the Saturday Night Massacre. And so there was a Saturday in October, the 20th, when the special prosecutor had been set up by the Congress to investigate this, had subpoenaed the tapes from Nixon, and Nixon said no. So was he going to be accountable to the Congress or not? We all knew something was going to happen that day. Art Cox had a press conference in the afternoon. It was a beautiful day. He was all folksy. He wasn't a folksy guy at all, but he, he really pulled it off. He was really kind of Jimmy Stewart. And he knew he was going to get fired, and he was kind of setting it up so that he would. That night, I was actually doing a television program, and the bulletins were coming in. It was like we were in a banana republic. I mean, it was just bizarre. The bulletins were coming in. The president ordered Attorney General Elliot Richardson to fire Cox. Richardson refused and, and resigned. A few minutes later, President Nixon ordered William Ruckelshaus, the deputy attorney general, to fire Cox. Ruckelshaus refused and resigned. Your heads were rolling. And then Robert Bork, a then unknown uh, member of the Justice Department, he was the solicitor general, and he became acting attorney general, and he fired Cox. Next thing you hear is the FBI has cordoned off the— Wait, Robert, I— Yes. Sorry. Yes, these people— I'm about to show my—Robert histo- Bork is the one who fired Cox? Yes. And then was later nominated for Supreme Court nomination? That's right. There's a straight That's line That's appalling. There. There's a straight line there, too. So we didn't know that at the learn, time. Learn something new every day. I know. I know. <laughs> There are a lot of zellings in this story. People come and go, and they come back, and they, you know, they never quite go away. And so then that was really terrifying. But look, the president was out of control. I don't know if you caught the line in, in the book. That night or that weekend, he ordered a worldwide nuclear alert, although he was back at the residence at the White House. Nobody knew what was going on. Was, was he totally mad? What was happening? Who was in charge? It was uh, terrifying. It was such an alarming period. There were, you know, Nixon or his people and or his people were using such extra legal things as making up a list of his enemies and using it to get the IRS to audit people's tax returns. Nixon confused opponents with enemies. And we'd sit there sort of nervously, as I said, you know, is a a phone being tapped? Because people were wiretapped. Journalists were wiretapped. Nixon, too, was trying to plug leaks. A friend of mine went out that Sunday morning, and the newspapers were late. She said, they stopped the presses. This did not seem like a wild thought. So we don't have anything like that now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. 
Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. But let me let me actually zone in on a couple of the other things we don't have now because because I think this is important. And and again, when I say this, what I'm trying to do here is outline maybe differences in this situation. I'm not saying that anything that is happening in the Trump White House is like what was happening in Watergate. It's not. But in addition to maybe the underlying issues being pretty different, you talk about a special prosecutor. It's extremely hard for me to imagine a Republican Congress appointing over Donald Trump's veto a special prosecutor. And in addition, I just mentioned the Republican Congress. Watergate had at the very least a Democratic House. I don't remember who controlled the Senate. And Senate. And Senate. It's very hard for me to imagine. I, I wonder what would have happened. Here's my question. I wonder what would have happened in Watergate if you had the very hyper-polarized Congress we have today, same party control of Congress. Where does that go? Does it just get well, shut down what, early on? You've put your finger on the key thing. It was a Democratic Congress. It was not as polarized as now. And to leap ahead, but we'll come back to it, I, I assume and hope. The articles of impeachment that were voted by the House Judiciary Committee against Nixon were bipartisan votes. You didn't have the polarization, and you had it was very, very seriously approached. Let's set that aside because that was really an incredible. But would those votes ever have happened? Would that special prosecutor ever have happened, even if at that time Republicans had controlled the, the House and Senate? Because, and here's what I'm getting at: I don't know what is the truth with any of the Russia issues. I just don't know. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting it's one thing or another. I just don't know. But what I worry is that we're just not going to know. Because the investigations will get strangled in their crib by a House Republican majority that does not want to investigate. And, you know, there's there's some movement among Republicans in the Senate to investigate. But I'm I'm skeptical of how far they would actually take that. What you've done is wade into the dangers of, of looking for the analogies or trying to leap ahead and know what we can't know. I could come up with three or four ways Donald Trump voluntarily or involuntarily leaves office before his four years are up. It doesn't have to be impeachment, but it is a very big difference. That's, but, but I'm just looking for the investigation question. How do you find these things out? We're going to see. We're amid it now. Don't get ahead of the story. But I don't think that these things can be contained. You've got an awful lot of people in the intelligence agencies whom Trump is doing nothing to assuage, to say the least. They know things. It gets out. They tell their friends in Congress, and they get it out. I don't think this is a containable story. Now, whether it ends up in a prosecution is a different point, but I don't think it's a containable subject. There are too many people know too much. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come somewhere, and we don't, we don't have any idea what it is. But I wouldn't stick with you know just the Russia story. I'm content. It's funny. People sort of call me up and say, what's going to happen? Is it, having been through Watergate, I know what's going to happen. I don't have any idea what's going to happen. As I said, I, we could come up with three or four ways that Mr. Trump would not remain in the presidency for four years. He may. He may be there eight years. We don't have any idea. Could be there 12. 
Who knows? That's <laughs> right. That's right. He may rewrite the Constitution. I don't think so. But we do have the courts. We do have a lot of people who know things. It's going to be harder, but I don't think they're going to be able to contain that. I keep dancing around. There are other ways. Maybe Mr. Trump is going to say, God, being president isn't anything. This is no fun. I don't like it. I don't think he's very happy. He doesn't look very happy. To me, he had no idea that it wasn't like being a businessman with with no public stockholders. Your staff is mainly your family, and nobody gets in your way. And he's like, oh, my God, people are leaking things. Oh, heavens, I had no idea. Oh, the press is writing things I don't like. All these constraints which were built in are really bothering him to a great degree. So I don't think he's very happy. How is his health going to hold up? We don't know that either. He, to me, he doesn't look so great. He's paunchy, and I don't know. He just looks like a walking possible problem. Maybe... Maybe, maybe. I mean, there's going to be a hundred, you know, a hundred. But there's various things could happen. I think the thing is to, you know, be in it and be aware and uh, ride the adventure. But <laughs> that's, a, that's a cheerful way of looking at it. Putting aside the analogies or disanalogies to the Watergate situation itself, people often talk about Trump as a Nixonian figure, no. which has never seemed right to me. But I'm no. curious what you see there in the similarities or dissimilarities of the two men? Oh, they're so different. I can see similarities in how they're reacting to things. They both, A, hate the press, and B, are very suspicious of the press, and C, use their dislike of the press to their own political advantage. I mean, you keep reading... That, well, Trump's backers just thought it was great the way he was denouncing the press in this press conference. They think that's terrific. Nixon did the same thing. So that is a similarity. They both, I don't want to throw around the psychobabble terms, but they both have a fair amount of have or had of paranoia that they're out to get me. And Nixon knew that the bureaucracy, the bureaucrats, were all liberals and they were out to get him. Trump is certain that the intelligence agencies are out to get him. And so he's going to try to muzzle them, which is a huge mistake. He's making a very big, I can guarantee you that will not end well for him. So their, their reactions and their manipulations are somewhat the same. But Nixon, Nixon was a very smart man. I don't know how to comment on Mr. Trump's intellect, but I wouldn't think it's, it's not terribly deep. He, couldn't, he can't do concepts and he doesn't do layers. But Nixon really understood, you could, you could have a serious conversation with Nixon about China or Russia or trade or whatever, and he, he had a good mind. Trump is not a serious man. He doesn't have a serious mind. He doesn't read. So that, that's a big difference. But there are some strains there, but I just think we could overwork it. My own, I just wrote a column for the Financial Times that asked me to do one of these, and I said, Trump's going to have to get his own label. You know, put Watergate aside. It was unique. It cannot be replicated. God knows it shouldn't be replicated. And whatever this Trump thing is or wherever it goes, eventually we'll give it its own name. I hope without the suffix gate, please. Are we being hysterical about and unfair to Trump? Is the fact of conversations like these, the fear that some people feel, even the way that things like the Flynn discussion with Russia being reported on, do you think Trump is getting... A raw deal. No. 
Look, to be quite blunt about it, but I was writing it all last year, as you know, this is a man who is not really fit to be president. He doesn't have any background in any of it. He doesn't understand government. He's never been very interested in it. He doesn't have the mental discipline. To me, the, the only the one wonderment is that the wheels are coming off the train so early. You know, this is even in office a month as we talk. I never thought that he was fit for the job, but that it would be this apparent this soon. A lot of it has to do with the people he's chosen to have around him. The fact there's no discipline in that White House. Nobody's apparently nobody's afraid of him, although they won't confront him. And I've never seen a White House where the people in it are leaking so much about the boss. Now, some people are saying these are cries for help. I don't know what it is. Are they trying to get in good with the reporters? I don't know. But it's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah, that that part, how quickly the White House is breaking down, doesn't mean it can't be recovered. But, but that, It that didn't break very... down from anything. It never was. <laughs> it never was. I think there's something to that. But so let me go back to this question of Trump's competence. Mm-hmm. So there is an argument people make, which is that some of the more florid fears about what a Trump presidency could rot, mm-hmm. particularly around ideas of autocracy, or I'd like to, I think the autocracy language is not helpful. So use illiberalism. Authoritarianism. Sure. The thing that is interesting there to me is that there is a tendency in Trump, and I'm, I'm doing a piece on this, so you're hearing me work it through a little bit in my head, but- well, We can write it here. <laughs> there is a piece of Trump where as he gets stymied by the institutions of government- mm-hmm. Leaks in his own government. He feels that there is relentless opposition to the media. I think he's wrong about that. The That's right. Media would happily cover him well if he would just act more normally. But right. you know, he he sees the media as arrayed against him. He sees the courts as arrayed against him, and has, has tweeted out angry things about their their rulings on his refugee and immigration ban. And what is happening is that he is himself, as this happens, turning against the institutions of government. He is getting angrier at the bureaucracy, and so he's setting up an internal process that freezes much of the bureaucracy out. He is getting angry at the media. That's what that press conference was about, making the media into his real enemy. Getting angry at the courts and saying, if there's a terrorist attack, you should blame the courts. Mm -hmm. The part of this where Trump seems dangerous to me is if things keep going badly, and the way he absorbs that is all of these institutions are out to get me and they're out to get you, the forgotten man, and they're keeping you from being safe and they're keeping America from being an America first country. And then something does happen. There is a terrorist attack. There is some kind of deus ex machina that creates a rally around the leader effect that what he might do with that power, given the anger he's beginning to develop about our institutions, could be very dangerous. I think there are two reasons for trying to calm you and others down about that. And you're not saying that you believe this, but it's true. A lot of people do. One is he's not that competent to be an authoritarian president. He's not that into... That's why I don't want to use the word authoritarian. I don't think he can get there. That's right. But that is the fear that he he wants to be the the authoritarian president. And I think he would like to be. His his admiration for Putin, whatever else is about, he really likes these strong men... Figures. I, I would put the fear differently. Like, let me let me try to give you a less a less hysterical version of the fear for you to respond to, which is, let's say that he spends two years deciding the media is the central problem with the country. Right? It is his. You know, Bannon already talks about the media as the opposition party, and there's all this leaking in the government. 
Let's say there's a terrorist attack. Le- leaking in the White House. Yeah, leaking in the White House. But he's upset more about the leaking in the in the intelligence agencies. That's right. Let's say there's a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. What does Donald Trump's FISA bill look like? Let me uh, let me go back to my two reasons to calm you down because it'll recall that argument down. One is I don't think he's that competent. Well, I'm going to give you three. I don't think he's that competent. He doesn't know where the levers are. Nixon did. Number two is he has eroded his authority. I don't know if erode is a transitive verb, but his, his, his authority has eroded very quickly because of all the lying and exaggeration that from the point of view of someone who wants a competent government and a government that can respond, I don't, this is very damaging to his ability to govern. We don't believe him. And there's good reason not to believe it because he, to use the word flat out, he lies so much and he won't let it go. He's still talking about this victory in the Electoral College that he didn't have. And he tried that at the press conference. And then when he was caught on it, he said, well, I've seen it around somewhere. He's very clever at that sort of thing. And the third thing is I've told my more hysterical friends, I'll watch the Republicans Watch the Republicans in the Senate in particular. Watch Mitch McConnell. Watch the House. Less so uh, because I think Paul Ryan is so uh, determined to get his tax cuts that he'll let a lot of things slide that he shouldn't. But you've got a lot of people up there, Republicans who are serious people. They don't, they're very concerned about what is going on, and I don't think they're going to let him get away with a lot of things. He's not going to have a lot of allies anywhere in the government. So I'm not, I'm not terribly fearful that he could pull that up because he's undermined himself already. That's a, that's a very interesting point. So I was talking to a, a senior Democrat the other day. He was saying that whatever Chuck Schumer wanted to do initially, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Chuck Schumer can no longer cooperate with Trump. Not, not that mm-hmm. he even still wants to, but Trump made mm-hmm. himself – Trump could have come out and in his inaugural address and in what he did next, he could have – Let's gather around the stimulus bill. Uh, yes, exactly. And now Trump has made himself so toxic among Democrats that it would be incredibly hard for, for Democrats to help him. But it is an interesting question of these moderate Republicans because I have been continuously surprised at what they are willing to put up with. There are a couple people like McCain who have been on issues that are very important to them, like Russia particularly, have been willing to push Trump a bit harder. But, you know, moderate Republicans in the Senate did not think Betsy DeVos was a good education secretary. Even conservative Republicans in the Senate did not think Betsy DeVos was a good pick, nor did they think Jeff Sessions was a good pick, nor are they super happy about Steve Mnuchin. Right. None of this was- Pruitt. Pruitt, right. None of this was their, their, their hope, but- one thing that they are is very afraid of their base. And so the, the, the part of the, the analogy that worries me is that even now, Donald Trump's disapproval among Republicans is single digits. It's very, very low. And so in a world where there was more of a rally around the flag effect due to some external threat, would those Republicans stand in the way of anything? I'd put it slightly differently. They're afraid of Trump's base. And they have been all along. This is one of the reasons he got the nomination, because people were afraid to go in and rile them up. And that's a whole other thing about how he got nominated. But they've been afraid of his base. This was the crux of when Nixon fell, because 
the same you had there, you had a real parallel of Republicans being worried about Nixon's base. And he had quite a strong one, but it eroded. And this base has accepted an awful lot from him. But I think we can be pretty sure that at some point, what if he doesn't deliver on jobs? And they realize they've been conned, which they have been. When the base starts to erode, that's what did in Nixon. That gave the Republicans their spine to say, this can't go on. Similarly, when, if Trump reaches the point where he's so costly to the Republicans, they're looking at their midterms in two years, and then you, you need the other element, which is his base would start to erode, and then you'll see them get a little more spine. But they're not getting out ahead of themselves. I think with the cabinet, they thought, well, the votes are there, and I'm just not going to, you know, this isn't what I'm going to, He'll just name somebody else equally horrible, and so we'll just let that go. But I don't think that means that you don't have stasis. These are these are there are erosions and growths, and it'll change. But this is a way in which, particularly the more polarized politics of now, seem to me right. to, to play an intervening role. Right. Although even then, if you're a Republican looking back at the Watergate example, you do have a bipartisan ultimately effort to push Nixon out, although though he resigns before he's actually... Not completely. They were still supporters of his of course, on, the, yeah. on the Judiciary Committee. But Republicans get murdered in the next election. Right. Right. It doesn't separate them from him. They, they get dragged down by him. And, you know, my sense is that if you're Paul Ryan or any of these guys, and right now, nobody thinks, and I don't think anybody's reason to think, that Donald Trump has done anything impeachable. No. So... But what you don't want to do is find out that you're wrong. <laughs> There's a good line in David Frum's piece on on Trump and autocracy where he says, the thing Republicans can do is not find out about any scandals there might be. Mm -hmm. Because you don't want to have the choice of this looks really bad. What do I do with it? What you want is for nobody to ever know something looks really bad. But you can't and so that's where I wonder a bit about the investigatory potential here. There's not going to be a special prosecutor. I spoke to, to Evelyn Farkas who was the top Pentagon official for Russia. And she was saying, we need an independent commission. Congress is creating an independent commission, but I don't think they're going to create an independent no. commission. I don't think they're going to investigate. And so that, that's where I get a little concerned that we're just not going to find out the truth of what's going on, even if that truth is totally banal. Wouldn't that be a downer? <laughs> or not a downer. It'd be great if it turns out that there wasn't the political corruption that it now there are strong indications that there was. But again, Ezra, you can't contain it all and you can't contain everybody. Mm -hmm. And as I said to you earlier, there are a lot of people, you don't need very many who know an awful lot. And, you know, a lot of the leaks, you know perfectly well, or perhaps better than I do, how these leaks come about. They aren't really from the intelligence people to you, to me. They go to the Hill. And the Hill people put it out. There's a triangulation that goes on. I don't think it can all be contained. I keep using that word, but I just don't. But, you know, I, I think maybe what we ought to do is say, forget Watergate. This is a whole new thing. Mm -hmm. And let's just see how it plays out. And it could play out in various ways. How's Trump's health? Does he hate it? Does he go crazy? You know, I'm not saying he is, but... We don't know. 
People talk about the 25th Amendment where people declare him unfit to serve. I mean, there, there, I think there are serious grounds for concern about his capacity to do this job. But let, let, you just have to let it play out. And I say, look, we should just... Nixon used to say there's no whitewashing of Watergate in this White House, whatever that meant. But I think maybe we should whitewash Watergate, just get rid of it and just let this be a thing unto itself. Give it itself, give it its own name and let it play out. I think that makes total sense. But I, I think the place where I'm a little bit surprised by your let it play out language is that my read of, of your book and other books and, and that period is that to have it play out was an act of enormous effort by many actors. And it was very contingent. It, it could have not happened. That's exactly it's right. It's entirely possible that it wouldn't have played out. That's right. And I think the thing that I am trying to understand about this era, given some of its real structural differences in terms uh -huh. of who controls Congress, in uh -huh. terms of how uh -huh. polarized the parties are by their base, in terms of just how different everything is, and also in terms of different parties having had that experience too, right. is what will be the deciding factors between it playing out and not playing well, out? Well, there you are. You're getting ahead of the story again. When but, I say let it play out, I don't mean let yeah. me be passive about it. I mean we can't anticipate how it's going to evolve, play out, whatever the word would be. And so that's all I mean. You can't get that ahead of the story and try to write the conclusion when there are lots of loose things going on here or will go on. Who knows? I mean, there could be another scandal that dwarfs what's going on now. We don't know. There's a whole subset of where you – I don't want to be suggesting there's anything impeachable yet because I don't think so. And I, I take impeachment very seriously, as I told you. But there's a whole uh, – Trump, the Trump families combining the private business and the public service. There's there, there's there's trouble there, and every day, you know, not every day, but you know, then there's something the Chinese and the patents, whatever that's about. You know, there's just stuff going on. You've got a lot of lawyers. There's another thing. There's another institution now. There's sort of a lawyer class, law school professors and others, the ACLU who are really working on this, mm -hmm. and they're digging. And so it could be that it won't be anything about Russia that brings us to a head. Maybe it won't come to a head. I'm just saying there are too many loose. Parts And there are various other ways in which this could evolve. So this is a place where I think the Republican Congress, in a strange way, is failing Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That's a they good point. They needed to send a message to him quickly through the oversight committees, where Jason Chaffetz, I think, has been incredibly, incredibly lackadaisical. In, that's in, very kind of you. That's a, I, it's a nice word for what I think is happening. But they needed to send a message that, hey, you've got to run this clean. Because in two years, it might not be us. Mm -hmm. And the place where I start wondering about constitutional crises, I can imagine two scenarios that both look really bad to me. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll play both of them out for you to see what you think. One is that Trump's refugee ban continues to be pushed back by the courts. Mm -hmm. Then it goes up to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And there's a 4-4 split. Maybe Gorsuch, who's nominated by Trump, says, hey, I should be recused from this. So you get a, I'm not saying he will, but imagine something happens. It's a 4-4 split or even it's a 5-4 decision against. I don't know how Trump would react to that if it's just – they just say no. That's one. And But particularly, I really don't know what would happen if it were the 4-4. The other is that Democrats win back the House in 2018, which seems unlikely to me, but it could happen. Stranger things have. And they start really investigating. 
And this administration is not prepared for real investigation. Mm-hmm. And they just say, we're not, we're not giving this to you. We're not doing this. You can't, you don't, that you can't win that one. Uh, you know, in many ways, the Clintons tried it on much smaller issues. Nixon tried it. If Congress wants to uh, play its role, you can't just say, oh, you're not going to give us the papers? Well, okay, fine. Never mind. They're not going to do that. They're going to, you know, they're going to demand them. They're going to take it to the court or whatever they have to do. Now, in the court, that's a very interesting point. Because, of course, the, the big thing that Trump did on the immigration order was when he lost it with, in the district court in uh, the state of Washington— he referred to the so-called judge. Mm-hmm. Now, we all get attuned, and I think this is where Nixon and the courts kind of gets us all kind of, you know, uh, there's trouble. But he did that, and I think you can overread into what Trump writes. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, try to destroy the court, so I'm going to say the so-called judge. I mean, he just, you know, it's like uh, weeping Schumer. I mean, he just does these things without a lot of thought. But... Here's the point, that when the Ninth Circuit upheld the uh, so-called judge in, in the state of Washington, the Trump administration obeyed it. Yep. They did not try. They didn't try to flout the law. So there may be lines, I don't know, you know, I, that may have been that it was uh, General Kelly of the Homeland Security, Homeland Security Department, who said, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to flout the law. And you see that kind of thing where he, you know, he's really been a good soldier in a not terribly wonderful way. But you're going to have cabinet officers who are, some of them you know, do have some character. They don't want to destroy themselves and their reputations forever. He's going to have a lot of resistance. So I worry less that he's going to be this huge, Trump is going to be this huge figure who could stop the courts Stop the investigations, muzzle the press. You can't. It's too big. It's bigger than him. And come back to the point as he has undermined himself so much. I mean, anybody expected a different Trump to come out of a mm-hmm. shell on the, on the inauguration day was, was hallucinating. He's, he's who he is. And he has a very loose relationship with the truth. But he, this has been my concern. How do you govern with that? What, what if there is a crisis? Are we going to believe him? Now, we had this with Lyndon Johnson in the Gulf of Tonkin. It turned out they lied to us. So there's been a lot of lying about national, international crises. And this is a big problem. I, you know, I don't know what that's going to be. And people put a lot of faith in some of you know, the national security uh, cabinet officers but uh, as we speak, Mr. Tillerson has barely been in the Oval Office. He's not been around for, you know, when Netanyahu was here. He wasn't consulted on various things. He didn't get his deputy. These people aren't staffed. But there are a lot of people who are just not going to go along. I, I think that's right. I also, I very much agree with you, actually, despite laying out that scenario. I did not read much into the so-called judge tweet. I, right. I thought that was just no. Trump being Trump. Yeah. Trump is also a guy, a little bit unusually, who has a very long record of obeying court judgments. He is constantly being sued. He is constantly in court. He goes and he gives his depositions. He wins some cases. He loses other cases. And he just, he, it, it's funny because I think that that is a part of government in a weird way he understands. Mm-hmm. Like that is a part of government he really interacts with. That That's right. That's his one governmental experience. Yeah. So uh, I, I I sort of 
doubt that he would go to the mat against the court. But again, if there was a, I just, all these things are very low probability to me. Right. But they're low probability with very, very high downside. Right. In a way that makes me want to at least be thinking about them in advance. The the thing that you just said, though, I think is interesting about Trump in a crisis. The government is running very, very badly. Mm-hmm. And the government is, it's understaffed. But the, the part of this that I keep coming back to is, he doesn't trust it. He does not trust the government he runs. He he feels and and by the way, for him for to give him some credit with good reason, the government is leaking on him constantly, and not just his White House staff, mm-hmm. people who are holdovers, members of the civil bureaucracy. How are these conversations with the foreign leaders? And how are these transcripts getting out? Yeah, I don't know. Boy, that's, um, that, that's his own staff. It must be. Right? Must be, but or some you know some low level person on the NSC staff who has access to it. But I mean, he can't he can't seal these things up. But this is really bad to have a president who does not feel in control of his own of his own presidency. Somebody pointed out a Trump tweet that that was really interesting, where this was during the Ninth Circuit hearings, mm-hmm. and Trump tweeted something like, "I don't understand why." The lawyers defending the the ban aren't using the Boston precedent. Now he probably saw something like that on cable news and so mm. sent it out. But but the person pointed out to me, he's like, look, like here's Trump. These are his lawyers. He doesn't know where to find them. He doesn't mm-hmm. know how to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know how to get to them. He doesn't know who they are. And he's just like tweeting out legal advice. And as you say, during a crisis, this seems to me to be a guy who is underslept, who is cocooned among a very small number of advisors who's mistrustful of both the information he's getting and the bureaucracy and agencies he runs. And miscalculation and really bad mistakes seem very possible to me here. That's why I'm, I agree with you. That's why I'm saying um, we can't focus, you can focus, but it's wise not to focus so much on the Russian thing because if that doesn't explode, there are various other things, some unimaginable now, that could explode. But it's uh, it's not a well-oiled machine, as he mentioned, as he said the other day. It was weird that he would try to establish that. I don't know what he really thinks. He, I think he must be terribly frustrated. But I'm not going to worry about him. That's his problem. He wanted the job, or I don't know if he wanted the job. We don't know. Uh, I think sometimes with the BP oil spill, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, in the Gulf mm-hmm. under Trump. That's a good one. Just what would he do? Rex, come fix it. Yeah, I guess that's right, right? That would be, you You would hand that over to Rex Tillerson. Mm-hmm. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back And they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area 
for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. In U.S. working forests or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. I think an interesting thing about the Flynn stuff is that with Flynn resigning, given the people there at least floating for the job, and, and I believe Flynn's deputy is also gone or is heading out, he's going to have a pretty, a much more mainstream foreign policy team than him. I think the question is just whether he listens to them. That's correct. I don't know about Flynn's deputy. There, there are conflicting stories about that. You have over at the NSC, though, you do have a kind of floating bureaucracy of you know people who've been there. They come over from the agencies. Is Steve Bannon going to stay on the principals committee of the NSC? If, uh, if he asked me to become national security advisor, by the way, I'm not available, but if he did ask me, I would really want to know the terms and I would want Mr. Bannon off. I do not want a political advisor sitting in on these meetings. There'd be a lot of a number of tests. Now, the, the man who turned it down wisely, I mean, you know, I think he, I don't think it had to do with the press conference. People say he saw the press conference and said, never mind. I, I think that's silly. Is that a maw you want to get into? You don't know if you're going to be listened to. And you know who are you talking about here who turned it down? Mr. Harward, mm-hmm. SEAL Team 6, very good credentials. I would turn it down if I weren't otherwise occupied, but I don't expect to have that problem. You just don't know because there, there's no structure to this White House. So Reince Priebus is the chief of staff. As I understand about Reince Priebus, he was a very strong national committee chairman. The, uh, the national, Republican National Committee is kind of controlled by the state chairs. And Priebus, who I don't know, he sounds like a perfectly nice man trying to, trying to do right, but he's not a tower of strength. And so... Trump could say to Lee's blue in the face, now, Reince, I want you to take charge. Oh, if he really does want him to take charge, this isn't how he ran his campaign. He likes these competing. But he's not FDR, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, who knew how to play off the competing groups. And he, he knew what he wanted, and he knew who to reach for. And he had very, very, very smart people around him and different kinds of smart people from different avenues. So he really got very good information. Does Trump want an orderly White House? I don't know. Can he get one? Can Reince Priebus do it? Can anybody go in now if there were a a Jim Baker Jr. who answered the call because he's a patriot? He'd drive a very hard bargain before taking the job. But see, that that seems to me, and, and we will see, that seems to me to be a place where Trump's personal proclivities Exactly. Disqualify the normal kinds of recovery you would see in a White House. Exactly. It is pretty normal for a president to come in and then after a year of not things going this badly, just no. things not going as well as they had no, hoped. Clinton had that for say, a while. Say, hey, Mac McLarty, my childhood best friend, in Clinton's case, should not have been my chief of staff. He should um, have known that from the beginning. Sure. Nice it, man, but he wasn't equipped to do the job. And you even saw a version of this with Obama. This didn't work, but he brought right. in Bill Daly, said, right. I'm going to get better relations right. with the Republicans. It seems unlikely to me that what Donald Trump is going to say at some point is, boy, 
this actually is hard to manage. I didn't take it seriously enough. I underweighted the value of actual expertise in Washington. It seems to me he's going to turn against the institutions that are foiling him and retreat further into Bannon-Miller world. And I could be wrong, right? I can I can imagine reading the story that at some point Ivanka and Jared Kushner persuade Trump that Bannon and Miller are the problems and then, you know, things take a, take a turn. But Trump is so grievance-based in his understanding of the world <laughs> and he is so Great has term. so little tendency to self-reflect that way that I just don't see that kind of recovery in the offing. Or Trump could get tired of Bannon getting so much publicity and Bannon being written up as the Svengali of the whole administration. But this is the way Trump wants it. He doesn't. He, he did not set up. Once you put a Steve Bannon, there's only one Steve Bannon, I hope, but once you put him in the kind of job he's put him in and he's always got your ear and he's got this whole worldview that he's going to try to impose on Trump who doesn't really have a worldview or very many... He's a strangely malleable man. That's one of the things that struck me is that he has a few fixed views, but you can get to him and push him one way or another. So as long as he's got Bannon, he's got his son-in-law, he's got, you know, a so-called chief of staff. He's, it's, a, it's a stew that doesn't blend. And um, that's the way he set it up. Unless he gets rid of these people on whom he's become very dependent— and sets up a hierarchy, but that's not him. That's not what he's done. He's not, you know, he's not a military man. So I want to go back to to the Washington Journal piece of this, right. and, and something you've been making me think a bit about. So what you're saying, in the way you understand, I'm going to say this story, but I don't mean this one story. I mean the story of the Trump administration in totality playing mm-hmm. out, is that the mistake people make is they try to extrapolate a clean story from where they are. Right, exactly. Right? And that in real life, like use Clinton as, as the example, you begin with Whitewater, you end with Monica Lewinsky, mm-hmm. right? Things take their own pathways. And that the lesson, to the extent there is one of that, of that era, is that when you have a White House with particularly chaotic scandal-adjacent tendencies – what you're going to get is a lot of chaos and scandal. Mm-hmm. Which ones end up being the most important? It could be a response to a crisis. It is and an undisciplined boxed, president. And an undisciplined president. But but what you're saying is the thing to think about here is that you have a very cracked foundation. A lot of things can go wrong. We're not sure which of them they'll be. But the but the underlying problem here is a cracked foundation. It's not it's not just necessarily the Russia story. The Russia story is more symptomatic of that. That's right. And I've already mentioned uh, what happens if there are accumulation of Trump Inc. scandals. There are many ones all over the place. And as I say, you've got this sort of legal core. Another, another uh, new phenomenon we have is the state attorneys general from uh, New York, California, and they're going to fight and they're going to bring suits. And this is another new force. You've got another force getting off sort of off target what you were asking about, but look how Trump has mobilized his opposition. I mean, it's phenomenal. I had no idea. My confession is the Women's March was going to be what it turned out to be. But here you have, first of all, there's the ambiguity of how he won. He didn't win the popular vote by a long way. This isn't... Uh, this isn't uh, George W. Bush with 437 or 27. This is almost 3 million votes. I think this is why Trump obsesses about the Electoral College fantasy. So you've got a lot of aggrieved people who think, he, you know, we didn't vote for him. 
and by a long shot. And they feel that they've been sort of tricked or been had. Let's get to the Electoral College. That's a totally different subject. So um, if anything, the, the Democrats are having a problem or they have an incipient problem of if Chuck Schumer wanted to work with him now, I'm not sure that the, the base of the Democratic Party, which is moving left and solidifying, would let him. And that also gets into another subject of the Democrats going to start eating their own the way the Tea Party did. And mm-hmm. primary people, that's a transitive verb, put in somebody that's more ideological against, against uh, someone who's there. And by the way, we, we skipped over this. When you talk about the, the midterms, one big difference now is the redistricting has made, you know, almost no really swing seats in, in the House, maybe 30 out of the whole House. And this is a big problem. And the Democrats have sat back and kind of let let the Republicans take over the state legislatures as a whole. So you've got a lot of different factors that can affect things that we haven't yet taken into account because they haven't had to act yet. But look look at the look at the uh, immigration mess. Like lightning, people were out on the streets on that Sunday. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Marching, marching all over the country. You had lawyers turning up at airports saying, can I help? There were seen so many lawyers offering free help, but there they were. And Trump has created this. He has polarized it to some to a great degree. And so that changes the dynamics between then and now. Quite greatly. There are forces going on that have not been there before. Who are you watching in Congress as bellwethers or unusually interesting actors? I watch Mitch McConnell because he's one shrewd man. And he was very careful all during the election. But you can see that he reaches a point and he's about there. In interviews he's had this last week. He'll say, I like what he's doing, you know, because he'll say he picked a you know, good conservative, if not right wing cabinet and so on. He wants, he wants the tax cuts, too, although not as passionately as Paul Ryan does. But Mitch McConnell has an institutional sense. And this is what uh, Trump is offending. And Nixon offended it. And they're not going to let themselves be, tr- you know, trod over. I look at Ben Sass. Very smart. Everybody says up and coming. I hope so. He's a very attractive, very smart, smart figure. He's not. You kind of know where uh, McCain and Lindsey Graham are going to be on a lot of these issues. And that's all well and good, but you need more than two. You need four, at least. Uh, Republicans have really, you know, changed something on the floor. So I don't know if it's that many individuals. I can, I've named them, but just you watch for the mood. You watch for what seems, this is a little too much. You watch the reaction to the press conference, and apparently all oh, this shock horror on the Hill. Where were they last year? Were they not watching him? To me, it was stunning and totally unsurprising. This is, this is Trump. That's how he talks. He just had an uninterrupted hour and 15 or whatever it was. There's a part of me that is, not a part of me, there's all of me. <laughs> that is very uncomfortable with the role that the state security agencies have played in American politics in the last eight months, beginning with, possibly before that, but really beginning with Comey's FBI letter. Now we're seeing Mm. all this leaking. We're Mm -hmm. seeing pro-Trump leaking. We're seeing anti-Trump leaking. We're Mm -hmm. seeing rogue parts of the FBI whose their leaking can't be controlled. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of this seems 
a little banana republic-y. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying we are a banana republic. I'm not saying we are headed there. But I am saying that it is something that America, American politics has been reasonably blissfully free from, which is heavy levels of intervention by state espionage agencies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in elections and in day-to-day domestic politics. So things seem out of control. Things they? seem a little out of control. How worried does that make you? Or is, is it not worrying at all? It's not worrying me yet. There are bigger things that I worry about. I know what you're saying. Comey FBI, that's a very interesting story, and I don't think we've seen the end of it yet. And I could see Democrats just being enraged at his sending the letter uh, that, oh, they found these emails on, what is it now, Hillary's, in effect, younger sister, best friend, whom was a strange husband's laptop? They hadn't looked at them. They didn't know what was in them. He sends a letter on that, and he's sitting on the Russia story. And then Trump is very early to say, you stay in, which is also interesting. I don't think Comey has much, has much of a constituency in either party, because the Republicans were furious at him that he didn't prosecute Hillary Clinton. I didn't think it was a you know, highly prosecutable case. And, you know, guess what? You, you know this, but you can't hardly say it out loud. Prosecutors do make distinctions. You're not going to prosecute the, the candidate of a party over something that's less than really pretty horrendous. You're just not going to. That's what prosecutorial discretion is about. He just wasn't going to do it. You can't say it out loud. Yeah, there's something. And he, so why did he write the letter? Well, his, his sympathizers and many of them in the press said, oh, he had to do that because otherwise the New York Bureau was going to leak. Well, that's not a very jurisprudential argument that I can understand. He's got a discipline problem. He's got Rudy Giuliani with his flat mouth of his going, you know, saying too much all the time. He really should sort of stay away from him. I know what you're saying, but there's a certain safety in that, too. I mean, it's almost the analog of, well, so when I keep telling you the intel intelligence people, they know stuff and they're going to leak. And we consider that a safety valve. You know, sometimes it works for you and sometimes it works against what you think is the right thing. Mm-hmm. What are you said there are, there are things you're worried about and watching. What are, what are those things? Well, this is going to work. If, as my instinct tells me, and I could be absolutely wrong, I just don't see Trump staying there for four years. How much damage is going to be done in the meantime? That's quite a prediction, by the way. Well, I just it's just an instinct I have. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I saw. I didn't see Nixon lasting, but I, you know, I, I just, it, it's not sustainable. Not like this, anyway. And it's not like, well, okay, Bill Clinton realized he made a mistake in his chief of staff, so he gets a better one in, and it sort of shapes up. Not so, when you say not sustainable, not sustainable for whom? For Trump? For the country? For the media? For the Congress? For the situation for is not sustainable. That you have this president who really isn't fit for the job. We have to be, you know, completely upfront about that who I don't think particularly likes it, who doesn't really know what he's doing, uh, who's not coming to grip with issues. He, nothing. He hasn't passed a thing. By this time, Obama had a stimulus bill. Yep. With great and Lily di- Ledbetter. Yes. And yes. there was movement on Obamacare. I mean, the lot was happening. Yeah. He governed. Trump isn't governing. He's feeling sorry for himself and doing executive orders that, well, I guess now, you know, you learn, all right, well, maybe if, if uh, Mr. Miller and Mr. Bannon are not going to be the sole writers of the next 
immigration order. Frankly, I don't see how they can do it without it being unconstitutional. As long as they still want to ban people from certain countries, that's unconstitutional. I don't see how. I think they're trying to do something that can't be I'm done. Not, I'm not sure that's right. I think you can ban people from certain countries. Well, there's a law that says is it 65 law that says you can't ban just because from where they're from. But anyway, that gets yeah. That's, that may, maybe it's not my understanding, but I do think what you're saying is interesting here, which is that this is a lot. It's happening very, very fast. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of it going on. I do think a thing that is a Let me say this in two ways. One is that I have heard Bannon and Miller and that team, they think the constant frenzy of stuff works for them. I'm not not sure they're right. Works for them. Works for them. Not the country. Well, I think not the country. But but something I think is interesting, you brought up the Obama example, a criticism you would hear of Obama, and I don't remember where this is from, but the idea that he needed to be caught trying. That Obama says that he would try to get things done, but he wasn't out there seeming like he was breaking a sweat in the same way. Whereas Trump, he's not getting anything done, but all he's doing is getting caught trying. You do think he's uh-huh, – uh-huh. if you're just kind of not paying that much attention, it seems like he's doing a lot because people are super upset all the time, even though he's getting very, very little done. Stephen Miller sort of ridiculously said he's gotten more done so far than most presidents do in administration. He has gotten less done than virtually any modern president has gotten done by this point. But there's a a feeling of activity and of frenzy. And the other piece of that is that Trump himself, a, a an adaptive feature of him, is that he does not appear to me to have the gland, most of us do, that makes us uncomfortable with very high levels of continuous conflict. Trump is uh-huh. happy to have a lot of conflict and chaos around him. Uh-huh. I, I don't I don't want to go, I don't know him well enough to say he thrives on it, uh-uh. but he is okay with it in a way that I certainly would not be. I literally would not be able to survive this. He likes to keep people it's it's almost the art of the deal, which I've never made myself read, but I know enough about it. Is he likes to keep people off guard. You know, and so a lot of what he's doing is he's He's trying to get people back on their heels from him, or you don't know, does he mean it, or is he just setting this up? That's the chaos he wants. The Bannon-Miller philosophy, which is, I'm told, Jared Kushner much agrees with, that the way to get things done is to have such chaos around that then you get your agenda done. It's a much more scary concept of chaos. As long as he has Bannon there and as long as he's listening to him, and I don't see how you can have one without the other, I don't see this working very well. And the only thing that could change that is if Trump gets tired of hearing about Bannon and seeing if he's on t- time cover one more time, that might be it. Because that's the kind of thing that Trump cares about. All right. So I know I've taken up a bunch of your time here, but let me ask you the no question problem. we used to, to close out the podcast, which is if you're going to recommend three books for people to read to try to understand – this kind of chaos within American politics, aside from Washington Journal, what should people read? What would give people some useful perspective here? This is going to be a very know-nothing answer. We've not been here before. I mean, you could go back to a Sinclair Lewis book. You could go to uh, Philip Roth. What is the name of the book where Lindbergh wins the 1940? The Plot Against America. Yeah. Uh, and there you have your authoritarian president. But we're, you, know, you could read about Huey Long, but none of it quite fits. So then just what books would you recommend people read that are just good about American politics? I'd read any of those. Again, this sounds very know-nothing, but where we are is someplace so different from where we've been in the past 
And I wouldn't know where to, where to turn to as a guide for now. You can turn to places as a guide for, you could read, I, I think I want to read Andrew Jackson's biography. I never got around to it. I read Schlesinger's book on the age of Jackson, but I want to read his biography. But that's not going to tell me a lot about now. It's just going to tell me they, you know, they're, they're doing this Andrew Jackson myth, and Jackson's portrait is now hanging on the wall across from uh, Trump's desk. And they've, you know, whenever they start saying someone is someone else, there's an inherent weakness in that. Why do they have to be somebody else? I don't know about you, Ezra. I find keeping up with now so consuming. I mean, he's affecting, it, it hardly matters, but it affects all our lives. There is so much to absorb, so many things to look at, watch, people to talk to. It's like we're living in Trump land, and it's taken over our lives. Elizabeth True, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Elizabeth Drew. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back shortly. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 